Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Welcome to another exciting episode of uh, SFP Now. Um, as ever, we've got the uh, Doctor Who review first, um, in which we'll be reviewing The Heist. Uh, joining me for the review is Raisa, and returning from his ongoing war with alien parasitic viruses is Patrick Hayes. How are you doing, Patrick? Pretty good. Thanks for asking. <laughs> well, before we go to the Doctor Who review, we've got a, we've got a pretty interesting interview uh, coming up with Rich Hanley. Um, Who's sort of like he's he's a writer and journalist. Um, he's he's written quite a few books. Um, and he he's actually the person responsible for actually helping IDW um get the um you know get get all the NA Star Trek comic strips in into one vol into two volumes. You know for that IDW release couple couple of, couple of years back. Oh yeah. Oh. Well, it was basically his connection. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so basically, he's the interview uh, made her in the show. But first, let's get on with the uh, with the review of the heist. And Patrick, since you've not been with us for a couple of weeks, um, I think it's only fair that you you get first crack at the whip. Okay, doke. There's my crack. Um, I I liked it. I thought it was a pretty good episode. Um, looking at all the episodes as a whole, um, it was it was enjoyable. Um, albeit I thought it was a little predictable. I mean, the title was Time Heist, and getting about fifteen minutes into the story, it was pretty clear as to who the antagonist was and um, who was the secret force that was guiding them in their mission. Um, I got to admit, my favorite part of the whole episode was the slow mo entrance of all four characters into the bank. That was um, pretty cool. I thought that was great. All it was missing was music from Reservoir Dogs. That was the <laughs> only thing missing. Um, it was nice to see um, Clara bopping about and Clara getting called out for uh, making excuses for the... That's what you're here for. You make excuses for him. <laughs> that had me laugh laugh pretty good. Um, I was very happy to leave Earth for an episode. I felt like we've been tied to Earth for too long, so it was nice to be in an alien environment. Um, albeit one that looked like, yet again, the underbelly of some modern building somewhere in Britain. Um, I'm getting kind of tired of seeing things look like the engineering section of the brand new Enterprise under J.J. Abrams. Doctor Who seems to be suffering from that lately. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I thought I thought it was a fun episode. I like the twist with the alien. The, and I'm glad we got an alien. I got to admit, I've been desperate to see an alien that I haven't seen before. And we got a fantastic one in this episode. And uh, got two for the price of one, so I was very happy with that. Yeah, and, um, um, Reese, you have anything to add? Oh yes, I've got a few things. Um, first off, in the in the intro, um, I don't know whether this was just because they were rushing through the exposition dialogue, and when you rush through exposition dialogue, you miss stuff and it gets clunky. 
but in the when they crack open, uh, they have the recording that cracks open that initial briefcase, and they each you know give their identity and say that they went through the memory wipe of their own free will. The doctor identifies himself as a time lord from Gallifrey, not the last time lord from Gallifrey. Mm, well, he's no longer the last time lord from Gallifrey. You know, well, I mean, that's well, kind of been established. Well, yes, but. As of episode three, as early as episode three of this season, Clara was referring to him as the last of the Time Lords. And then, then they have Gallifrey appear in episode four. Then in episode five, he refers to himself as a Time Lord. So that was just, you know, that, that uh, was a massive paradigm shift with just a couple of words within an episode or so. And, and it's proof that Gallifrey, they're continuing to wanting to, you know, bring it back. Right. Which is uh, very interesting. Also, um, I thought it was very interesting that the the symbolism of uh, there were there were four characters in this in this heist group. The doctor and Sabra were paired off thematically and Clara and Sai were paired off thematically. Sai uh, was a guy who'd had who could wipe his own memories who'd had multiple sets of memories because of the uh, downloads. Um, and, that would, and that was kind of like Clara with the, with the impossible girl situation. Right. And, so you're, and, and then also you had, uh, you had uh, Miss Delfox, who was a clone, who, and that was a kind of parallel with Clara being the impossible girl because there were multiple copies of her as the impossible girl. And then you had, um, you know, uh, Saber kind of connecting with the uh, the doctor, you know, and with the whole, you know, identity and who, how do you trust yourself when you're looking out of your own eyes? And that was thematically what's happening with him and the identity crisis after all these regenerations, which was very helpful too. Um, I have to say that in terms of the in terms of the dialogue, my favorite my favorite one liner was when he was um, dealing with the alien and thinking that he. He was talking about, you know, do you like the new look? I was going for minimalism, and I think I got magician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he, he also made um, another crack about his eyebrows. His eyebrows, yes. Yeah. Very, yes. very cool. But what, I, I, was, I, I actually enjoyed the episode as well. I was just sort of disappointed because it seemed like... Um, a huge, huge missed opportunity. I mean, I don't know whether this the same has been going on in the States. Well, the same has been going on in the States, but there's a lot of people here in the UK that are actually really, really ticked off with the banks and, mm. and, and the culture of bankers' bonuses of uh, so many million pounds per year and, and, and such and such, you know, when, they, when you know, when, when there's, you know, just this huge gap between between the top 1% and, and, and uh, the rest of us sort of thing. And it seemed to me that they they kind of like missed out on being able, on, on on making a satirical comment with regards to the to, to the bankers bankers bonuses and stuff like that in this episode. It's just a huge missed opportunity. Yeah, although I think you could argue that there was a subtle nod to that with Miss um, Kara Broxos' um, collection of the most valuable objects in her vault. Yes. Yeah, but it's too subtle, you know. Probably. Doc, Doc, yeah. Doctor Who used to ne- never used to be shy away from some from from some like a little bit of political satire. I mean, all you have to do is watch the Andrew Cartmill written 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 shows to actually get that. Yeah, true. You know, and um, and it just sort of like, seemed to me like a like like a huge missed opportunity. Um, as far as the actual episode itself, I, I really enjoyed the idea of a time heist. I thought it was actually, you know, well executed. 
Um, like Patrick already pointed out, I loved the scene where they entered the bank at the beginning, slow motion. Yeah, yes. that was pretty you know, great. I thought, I thought that was really, really cool. Um, but what I also found interesting was the scene where, where Clara comes face to face with the alien and, and for some reason um, it can't get a full proper read on her. And, no, and it can't. Just... And that was and that was the, the big one of the clues that we are having, you know, a continuation of the of uh, the impossible girl arc. What's interesting about that is uh, I've neglected to mention this before, but they, they brought this up in both the fact file for the episode on the official website and in the, um, in, and in the 12 and the, and the, in the brief uh, extra episode in the behind the scenes, they pointed out that the memory worms were first introduced in the snowmen mm-hmm. in, in that uh, episode where uh, Strax tries to use them on Victorian era, era um, and, inadvertently and, uses it on himself. <laughs> And, and uses right. it on himself, yes. So we're, we're we're continuing with Clara to have what I call an arc by omission. There are, there are nods to her previous thing, but they're not actually dealing with any of it overtly. But Moffat, being Moffat, he's got to be laying this stuff in for a reason. He can't. He's not. He's not just name laying it in. You know, just to, just to name call this crap. This it's got to be going towards something. Um, my big issue is next week will be episode six, halfway through the season proper. And I'm, I'm worried that at the point he gives us whatever this arc is leading to, any of the arcs are leading to for that matter, it's just going to be one giant exposition dump as he lays it all out in the final three episodes all at once. He's not pacing himself um, in, a, in a very conducive way. Well, to be honest, um, I, I kind of agree with that as well, uh, because usually... Um... Um, throughout Moffat's whole run so far, he's had two seasons where where the season has been split in half, and it's usually when 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 you've had those seasons that have been split in half, you've usually had um, a huge episode to sort of like uh, wrap things up for the first half of that season, and yeah. then and then you've had the um, then then you've had the rest of it revealed in you know over, over the last um, six episodes, and I've got a feeling that what what what's happened here is. Go knowing full well that he had twelve episodes to, to do it in, he's sort of like he's slowed the pace down a little bit. Yeah, and it's not. I'm I mean I'm sure for the for the more casual viewer, it's not even noticeable. But for those of us who who are are, are wired to notice this minutia and have grown used to his arcs and arc television in general, the pacing is off and it's beginning to bug. Because I, yeah. for one, I for one hate exposition, and I, and I went into and I went into this episode realizing very sadly, um, b- because of the the last minute scenes in this episode that were revealed the, the identity of the architect with these intercut flashbacks, that Moffat was basically telling us that we're going to be getting a crap ton of intercut flashbacks in the final three episodes of the season proper. Unless, unless, unless he spreads them out over the final six episodes. I, he could, and I hope he does that, but I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> um, what's really sad is back when we were reviewing episode three, um, Robot of Sherwood, I kind of joked about the fact that the reason we were getting these sort of only subtle hints to Clara's arc was because if he was too overt, he wouldn't be able to sneak in these, you know, these flashbacks and say, aren't I clever? Look what I was sneaking in and you didn't even notice. And I was half joking about that. But looking, but looking at it now, I realize it's not a joke. That is, in fact, what's going to, what's going to happen. 
And it's not very subtle either. And it's not going to be very subtle, and it's going to be most, if not all of it, within the last three episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Patrick, you've not been with us for for, for a couple of weeks now, and um, I, I'm, I'm guessing you've still been watching Doctor Who, ir- irrespective of uh, illness or, or anything yes. else. <laughs> um, so I'm just wondering, um, you know, what what did you like about the two previous episodes to this one? Um, because we had Robot of Sherwood and... Um, and the, and the other one was uh, Nissan, which uh, Reese and I really liked. That was awesome. Yeah. Um, I I didn't care for Robot of Sherwood. I thought it was a little a little over the top for me. Um, I think we've we've done the uh, the medieval uh, Doctor Who episodes enough that I was done with it. Um, it was it was it was just a silly episode, and I I couldn't ever invest anything in it after about twenty minutes. Um, once they were in in uh, in chains together. It became an Abbott and Costello routine. Um, did you not actually see the uh, missing footage, though? Because the, uh, the, the footage that they cut out um, actually put a different spin on the episode. Oh, no, I didn't, no. Uh, Reece, um, do, you, do you remember what, what happened there? Can you, can you explain? Yeah, and, I mean, and here's and here's some irony. The, enti- the only reason we know what the missing scene was was because Robot of Sherwood was one of the leaked episodes. <laughs> Right. Um, so there's that bit of irony. Uh, the the leaked scene was the final scene during the final confrontation. The sheriff and and Robin are fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. And and the sheriff gets the drop on Robin. Gets his sword. The sh- the sword drops. We see that. But the next bit, which we don't see, is uh, it looks bad for Robin. And the doctor throws a tapestry over the the uh, sheriff to give Robin his edge and. At that point, uh, the Robin decapitates the sheriff, <laughs> and and this this is cut out because of that whole because of current events. But oh, the the, con- right. the context of the scene, though, I wish they'd kept it in because what happens is uh, the decapitated head starts monologuing, and we find out that the the reason the um, the reason the sheriff found the skyship was because the skyship fell on him. And it messed him up so badly that the robots dug him out and turned him into a cyborg. Oh. And uh, and then the his uh, headless body. We get a sort of uh, sort of sleepy hollow moment where the headless body takes uh, Clara hostage to get his head back. Robin thro- Robin throws him his head, and he puts the head back on. And then the fight scene resumes to the point where we see. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that that would have made it a little better, I think. I would have been a little happier there to learn that and to see that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the robot of Sherwood, as in that robot race, um, I think we're probably going to see them again uh, with, with this Missy character. Ow! Yeah, and the Promised Land. Yeah, since they were all right. going there. Sorry about that. My <laughs> cat's um, been perched on my shoulder thinking is a parrot and he's just moving he's digging his claws way in <laughs> make your mind up what you're going to do you stupid cat um <laughs> um as to listen what do you think of that one pat um i'm afraid i didn't like that one at all <laughs> it, it fell flat for me i like seeing clara out and about clara is very enjoyable this season i'm really impressed with what they're doing with her and i wish we would have had this clara previously with matt smith um, I like her running around in the past. I like that it wasn't her past. Um, I'm not thrilled with the TARDIS now having this interactive stick your fingers in because technically now anybody can drive the TARDIS anywhere. 
And one of the joys of Doctor Who is only the Doctor can operate it, and you end up wherever you end up because of his machinations. Um, I, I really didn't like that. Did not on, like that at all. On, on the surface, I agree with you, but I, I think that that was Moffat's clunky way of showing us that she's still impossible girling. Yeah, yeah, and she's 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 still a part of the TARDIS in a way too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, and it was a comp- it was definitely a Moffat episode. I mean, it had all his hallmarks. I was making a joke. I remember in the first episode saying, you know, well, if they have to cover their ears and go, don't listen or whatever. And what was this whole episode was listen. I'm like, he's hit every sense there is for Doctor Who. Yeah, no, that all is that's left. Is, all that's left is taste, and I can't imagine the Doctor or Clara running around. I don't know, licking Cybermen or something. So I'm, 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 I'm done with any episodes related to senses. Um, I like seeing Mr. Pink. Um, yes. Backstory to him. I like the soldier. I like future Mr. Pink. I thought that was a nice touch. Um, I just, I it just the whole, the whole premise of the episode bothered me, and I really did not like how it linked up at the end to um, uh, preteen doctor on Gallifrey. I, I didn't like that at all. I think that that probably has something to do with the Gallifrey returning arc and or the impossible girl arc because she was able to get there because she had been there previously as the impossible girl. I'm kind of wondering if she, the, the way they're going to end this season, it seems if, if she, if she as an actress is going to leave the series if she's going to be responsible for bringing Gallifrey back, because that would be an impossible event for the Doctor. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Although, although, although we have to wonder too what he's been writing on the chalkboard all this time. Because I think I brought up in my in our listened conversation. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the podcast, but right. I brought up in our listen listen conversation that one of the things that struck me is that we spend so much of the episode wondering about who writes listen on the board that we are kind of distracted again, arc by omission, by what he's been writing on the board all these all this other time right and so you know does that tie back to Gallifrey and is it going to be the two of them that has to do all this so you know I mean and the thing is narrative economy is going to have to factor into this because they've only got six episodes proper in a Christmas special to tie up whatever they're doing which is why the pacing is bugging my head out of me at this point Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the uh, and, and, you know, what one one of the things that we we did establish about this, and is it reiterates once again uh, why it's not a good thing for the Doctor to be travelling on old. Um, I mean, in in the episode, Kyra makes a joke, you know, to him that you know he's her hobby. Yeah, yeah. In, in episode two, she did in the Dalek episode, she's he's her hobby. And I'm like, no, 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 no. No, this is his life. If if his life is your hobby, you need to be seeing the next companion because you're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will say in this episode, I was really pleased. I, I'm not too keen on the doctor popping up into companions' lives, um, especially with Amy Pond there in the last season. But yeah. I'm loving him popping up in her bedroom with the TARDIS and she's getting ready for the date. And he's ranting about something, and all of a sudden he stops and goes, are you taller? Heels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My... It's, it's, very cute. Yeah. I'm like that. I'm, I'm liking it in an isolated. My biggest problem was was the banter about the date. This time didn't jive with the banter about the date last time. He acted more knowing about dating in the, in, the, in listen than he did about dating this time. So it's it's like they were rushing through the exposition for the for, for the sake of banter. Right. And they weren't really paying attention to the fact that, that the uh, the previous episode had a different underpinning than this episode did because he was acting like a complete rube 
uh, in this episode about it when, when it was obvious in episode four that he actually knew a bit more about it. Right. So, that, so could I, be, I, that could be a different doctor. It could be an earlier doctor. Probably, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> or, or, or he's just so oblivious that he doesn't care what comes out of his mouth. Either way, it was a little jarring. You know, right. Yeah. It, it's so. going to be interesting next episode since it looks like that's going to be a completely date-centric episode for Clara. Oh, God, yeah. I'm just hoping that it, when we get through next week's episode that – he, that uh, Danny Pink is in the know and we can just exit this dramatic irony-driven rom-com crap that we've been shoved into <laughs> because I do not I do not like it. Um, I mean, say what you will about Mickey Smith and Rory Williams. They each knew what the drill was. Yeah. And and I prefer characters who know what the drill is. Did you just... notice in the, in the uh, preview that uh, when uh, Clara, uh, the, the uh, faculty, is introduced to um, the doctor in his new p- position there, um, she's standing next to somebody who's a dead ringer for Matt Smith. I noticed that. Yes. Yeah. That's um. You know. I think. I think that's probably uh, That's probably Stephen Moffat sticking two fingers up at the teen fans. <laughs> the teen boppers. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, so it has been an interesting few episodes. I mean, I've got to admit, I felt missing was kind of slow. It could have been pacier. Mm. Right. But, a little you know, more humor too. Yeah, and a little bit more humor as well. But for all for all its faults, it, it was actually. Uh, I think it was actually. Uh, a bit of a key episode to, to the arc so far. Yeah, I think we're gonna we're gonna look back at listen differently when the when the season's over. I have a feeling it's 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 just one of those things. Whereas I think the uh, robot of Sherwood was kind of a throwaway episode, mm. like, like you say. I mean, I'm quite looking forward to this next episode, but I'm uh, I'm bit, I'm with you, Reese. As in, I'm I'm actually hoping that they. Uh, that they include Danny Pink in on the TARDIS crew from here on in. It All looks right. like they will. Oh, right. he needs to know the score. Yeah, he, need, he needs to know the score. I mean, dr- dramatic irony, secret identity storylines just don't work anymore. They just yeah. don't freaking work. And, you know, they, they don't work in a superhero context. They don't work in the context of Doctor Who. They just don't work. Yeah. And the fact that Moffat could th- thought that he could get away with this as long as he has um, means that he's just slightly out of it. <laughs> Plus, plus, it would be nice if they had two teachers back on board the TARDIS. Yes, yeah, and I think that I think they're going for that because I mean they brought Clara back to Cole Hill, um, which is kind of jarring beyond the fact that the, the meta need to bring her back to Cole Hill because she had this whole arc about how she lost her mother and was and was nannying those two kids because they lost their mother when she was visiting them and she felt like she was connected to them empathetically and so she stayed. And then all of a sudden she's working at Cole Hill. Yeah. And there's and there's no transition. I mean, and putting aside that people can acquire teaching degrees off camera on TV really quickly, <laughs> as as a as a separate conversation, just the fact that she changed jobs at all is very very jarring. I mean, it, 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 to me, on the narrative level, it's almost like is that an impossible girl thing where she's fractured enough that she feels she needs a, a different job and just doesn't consciously realize it? Are we going to get that much of an of, of an arc out of this? I don't know. Yeah, but how do we know that we've actually seen the last of the um, of the kids from from that family she was looking after. She That's could, true. You know, That's true. you know, we we've not seen any of her home life um, other than her bedroom this season. She could still be living with them. Yeah. Um. It's um. You know. Well, it, it's 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 one of those things, and you know, narratively, it kind of looked like they were in, like Moffat was going to introduce those two children into the storyline more last season because they, right. you had that you had them join them on the adventure with the Cybermen. But then again, by the end of that episode, it, it was kind of pretty much 
Um, it wasn't actually said, but it was more or less sort of like pointed out that that was going to be a one-off thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of it is that, um, and even even Moffat acknowledged this in various interviews, is that he um, was that Clara was initially designed to be a holdover for the rest of Matt Smith's run because Matt Smith's companion was Amy Pond, and he just needed a holdover to get to the next regeneration. And he and he compared it to Liz Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith switching from Pertwee to Tom Baker, wherein Sarah Jane, as awesome as she was with Pertwee's third doctor, she didn't come into her own until he became the fourth doctor. Right. And, and so... And really, you know, many many still consider Jill Grant to be Pertwee's main companion. Yes, and she, she was. she was with him she, for two seasons, so... Yes, yeah. So it's, it's yeah. And so I think I think Moffat is using that model and that and that justification to, at least on a structural level, explain why, why Clara has more of a personality now. Because he, he just didn't have time to think it all the way through. He just needed to get from A to B during Matt Smith's remaining episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so is, is that all we got for this week? Uh, Pat, do you want to want to add anything more? No, it, it was fun, and I'm looking forward to next week. <laughs> me too. Me too. Me three. Okay. <laughs> so that that that's it. That's a triumvirate of us, of all three of us. Looking forward to the next episode, and uh, and so Sasha Cat, who's now standing on my shoulder, he's he's now moving to the keyboard. Ow, ow, ow! I wish you wouldn't get on my desk like that. All right. I'm gonna have to call an end to this episode, folks. So you know. <laughs> So now it's on to the interview with uh, Rich Hanley. Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. to uh, welcome uh, Rich Handweed to the show, um, who's um, an editor and writer at, um, is it Halcyon Publishing? Uh, it's actually pronounced Hasline. Hasline. Uh, yeah, it's named after Otto Hasline, the villain from Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Aha. Yeah, I, I remember him. Yeah, he's the, uh, in, in the, it's the third Planet of the Apes film, and he's a scientist who has realized that Zira and Cornelius represent the eventual downfall of man, so he, he decides to kill them. And, um, but he was also, uh, one might wonder, why would you name yourself after a villain? It's because uh, um, he was a, an expert on time travel, and the very first book that we published was a Planet of the Apes timeline book. And so uh, it just seemed appropriate to, um, to name the company um, after a man who represented what... A a character who represented what it was we were looking to start to do, which was publish books about science fiction and other genres um, from a real geeky perspective, and it doesn't get much geekier than a 300-page chronology. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a um, bit like Star Wars, everybody loves Planet of the Apes. I wish as many people love Planet of the Apes as they do Star Wars, <laughs> then there'd be more more Planet of the Apes stories. But uh, but yeah, it's becoming big again. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm completely with you there. I mean, it's so it's kind of funny because you you see all these uh, you see all these so like uh, TV shows and um, when they're talking about geeky stuff, they talk about Star Wars being the um, being the big franchise that started off the all the merchandising sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah, I guess with Star Wars the merchandising did get really, 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 really big. Um perhaps too big, you could argue. But Planet of the Apes, uh, back when, when it came out in the sixties, you had lunch boxes, you had action figures, you had all sorts. It was a garbage can. You know? <laughs> 
Planet of the Apes garbage can. So it's um, it, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like crazy, you know. I'm totally with you on that. People give the merchandising credit to Star Wars, and understandably so. Lucas was kind of a genius when it came to merchandising, but Planet of the Apes was there first. It absolutely was. Um, anyway, Rich, um, got, I've got a few questions for you. I mean, uh, first off, uh, how did you get your start as a writer, and uh, and how did you go about uh, forming the uh, publishing company? Um, well, let's see. There's actually a very large gap from when I got started to, to this company, So, I, and I don't want to bore your readers, so I'll make it a quick one. Um, I, I knew I wanted to write when I was young, and I, I still uh, thought it was a scary prospect of saying I want to be a writer. It's like saying I want to be a movie star. So I went to college to become a teacher and taught for two years and realized it just wasn't for me. So I decided to go the other route that I had studied, which was journalism. Um, I uh, took various editing jobs I could find, and, and, and frankly, some of them are awful. I actually edited the phone book. That was my first editing job. I... I I, I can't tell you just how words do not exist in the English language to describe how excruciating it is to read a phone book for eight or ten hours a day. Um, but it did give me the experience I needed, and eventually I started uh, I started being able to find other jobs that were better. One, the next one was a medical editing job, which wasn't a very good job either. But it was um, it, it was a little it, it was more bearable than reading a phone book. I met someone who worked there yeah, named Dave Crablay, who was left to become a newspaper editor, and that, that turned out to be very fortuitous for me because I started writing for his newspaper. And um, the timing on that was perfect because at the time, I, this was the uh, early to mid-90s, mm -hmm. I was it was very early days of the web and uh, it wasn't the internet in its current form. It was people had dial-up modems and long before news groups, people would uh, go into chat rooms and bulletin boards. And I got to know a number of people who now are big names in Star Wars and several of them um, had just gotten their start in the star working for Star Wars. Uh, Lucasfilm and recommended me for jobs. So honestly, I, I'm here through the kindness of and generosity of, of several other people, and I never forget that. Um, and I've tried to bring other people on as well as I can because I, I believe strongly in the pay it forward model. And uh, so that's that's how it all began. And over the years, I just started writing for a bunch of different franchises and magazines, a couple of comic books, not that many because I, I really wasn't all that successful in the comic realm, role playing games, and so forth. And then um. Uh, 2008, writer uh, Edward Gross, who's become a good friend of mine, um, was looking to start his own publishing company, and uh, he approached me and asked if I, because I'd written some stuff about Planet of the Apes previously, and he asked me if I wanted to write a Planet of the Apes timeline book. Um, I did, Ed's company didn't quite go where he wanted it, and unfortunately, uh, um, I, I understood and totally why, but it, I ended up with a manuscript, but not a publisher, and so my friend Paul Giacchetti, who used to be the art director on a magazine that I, I edited, um, said, you know, he and I said, well, you know, we can do this. We've been, we've, we've, between the two of us, got a couple of decades of publishing experience. Why don't we, why don't we just take the plunge and, and start our own independent company? And for both of us, it's a side gig. Um, he, he's still the art director by day, and I'm still a magazine editor by day. Mm -hmm. uh, but at nights and on weekends, we've been running this publishing imprint, which kind of means no sleep, but it's fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I, should, I should imagine it presents its fair share of headaches as well. It does. Um, it helps that it, it helps when you get along remarkably well with your partner because um, this has really been a phenomenal working relationship with Paul. We, what would I say, two thousand eight? So this is six years. 
and we have practically never disagreed on anything. Uh, when we get together to work, most of that is just spent giggling like idiots because we have very similar senses of humor. So that makes it easier. But there are headaches. First of all, we don't have a team of marketing people, so we do everything. Um, and, mm-hmm. But it, you know what? It, it's its own reward. I mean, I, I'm in no way complaining because I really do love what we do. I, I've gotten to know some really great people. The, the writers who are currently writing books for us or have written books for us are I'm just, I can't even begin to tell you how happy I am to have them aboard. So it, it's, um, it's its own reward. Getting to work with these people more, far more than justifies any of the headaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is it just reference books that the uh, publishing company does? Or? Well, we don't. We haven't published any fiction. It's all non-fiction books about movies, so and TV shows and comics, um, timeline books, uh, uh, encyclopedias. We just published a book that's. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, oh, they're all reference books, but it's we published a book about Doctor Who that is uh, by by writer Matthew Elliott, who, who used to write for I think he still does actually for Rift Tracks, and uh, it's a, a look at um, all the off-screen adventures of Doctor Who. We've got another Doctor Who book coming out that's an essay book. Uh, that's by Paul Simpson and Brian Robb and so forth. A number of the other books that are coming out based on Universal Monsters and Ghostbusters and G.I. Joe and I know I'm... Uh, Alien versus Predator. I know I'm forgetting a couple, and they'll be offended, and I apologize. But they, they they span. Some of them are lexicons. Some of them are timeline books. A couple are in the other category. Yeah, I mean Paul Paul Simpson. Um, you know another another former editor of Star Trek magazine. You know I know, yes. I know that he's done a he's done a hang of a lot of reference books. I think he did a I think he did the Smallville uh books the, the the smallville chronologies yes he did yeah and 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 stuff like that um you know so like um you know i i love reading his work you know he's a he's a damn good writer he's impeccable he's really very good and we're lucky to have him he him brian robb um alan j porter uh david mcintee who else uh james and people who are well other upcoming books uh, james mcfadden um I, I know i'm skipping someone i don't i don't have the website <laughs> open in front of me but We've got a number of very talented people, and just really happy to have them. That's really what it comes down to. It's whatever whatever headaches are involved in trying to run this on our own. Um, it's it's so worth it. Yeah, there's actually a, a reference book that I might see someone do again because uh, back in ninety, I think it was around about nineteen ninety six. I was actually in 2000 I picked this up, but it only goes up to 1996. I picked up, um, you know, a book. It was full of photos and um, and lots of essay material and, and written material. And it was kind of like a, a, chronolo- a chronology of all the science fiction movies and TV shows that had pretty much ever been made up until that point. Oh, you know what? I know the book you're talking about. It was, um, yeah, it, was, it, it, it looked at it from a timeline perspective of when, uh, uh, for all of the major sci-fi shows. I know, was, was it Starlog Press that put that out? I'm trying to think of who. I, I think it might have been. It's by, it was, you know, I, I, I can't remember who wrote it, but he, he actually won a Hugo. I re- I'm thinking that I'm wrong about it being Starlight Press, but I do know the book you meant, and it was damn impressive. It, it was, and it, it'll be great to see, see see that updated. You know, give, given the amount of thing, the amount of stuff that's happened since 1996. Yeah, it would be about 72,000 pages now. <laughs> it, it probably probably would. You know, although they could actually, you could actually just do a do a whole page, which kind of like uh, you know doesn't skip over, but you know, kind of mentions the 30s and they say, if you want to read about the 30s, buy the first book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, um, although no, I actually did enjoy reading about the uh, the original Flash Garden movie serials and stuff like that. So it's uh, it was good fun. 
Um, yeah. Well, yeah. It's, so, so um, you got um, you got a Back to the Future book out. We've got two actually, uh, one by me and one co-written by me and Greg Mitchell, who um, actually his most recent work. He's a novelist. His most recent work was a Sci-Fi Channel movie called Snakehead Swamp, and um, he he and I co-wrote uh, the Back to the Future chronology, and then I I co-wrote I wrote by myself the Back to the Future um, encyclopedia. Well, I'm sorry, Back to the Future lexicon. I apparently don't even know my own book titles, and uh, <laughs> and. Uh, it was actually his idea. He had written to me after we published uh, two Planet of the Apes books and said, have you ever considered giving Back to the Future the same treatment? And my first answer was, uh, no, no, I haven't. But the more I thought about it, I said, actually, this would be kind of fun. I mean, it, like Planet of the Apes, it's it's heavily, heavily, uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for here? It's heavily, it's heavily, this wasn't the word I'm looking for, but it's heavily based in time travel. Mm. And that is really challenging to write a timeline book when you've got them jumping all over the place in the cartoons. I'll tell you. Um, so what I originally set up was that I was going to write the, the, the encyclopedia and Greg would write the timeline book. Um, but I ended up co-writing that with him anyway. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but man, what I tell you, your brain get, your brain ends up in a pretzel trying to work out some of the crazy. Um, convoluted time travel trips in that cartoon series. I've never actually seen the cartoon series, but I know that the uh, I know that the movies are actually credited by, by by one scientist as being probably the most accurate portrayal of what 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 a time time, time what a parallel universe would be. Well, it, it, uh, it, it's uh, if so, that's one wacky parallel universe. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's also it's also one of the first films. You know, it also kind of did parallel universe. Um, before before parallel universe became sort of like the norm in time travel, because I think um, I think at one point with Star Trek they started doing parallel universe uh, storylines every week. <laughs> Star, you know, I'm, I'm I am first and foremost a Star Trek fan. It's what brought that and Twilight Zone what brought me into science fiction as a child. Um, but I freely admit that Star Trek really did overdo science uh, time travel. Um, and that's you know it's unfortunate because time travel stories are really fun when 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 they're done right, like sitting on the edge of forever, they're amazing. Um, every now and then you get one and you just think, what the hell were you thinking? Mm-hmm. But but they, there have been way, a couple too many. It is a little too easy to time travel in Star Trek. But honestly, you know, if if, if something creates a good story, that's really more important to me. And um, I'm willing to overlook a lot in science fiction. I'm willing to turn my head to a lot of grown worthy moments if if in the end I enjoy the characters and I enjoy the story and. I think most of the time travel stories were actually quite good. I, Voyager's time travel stories were a little weak, but I like the other ones. Yeah, I, I personally think Voyager's stories were a little weak, to be honest. Um, and it's my favorite of the shows. I, 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 I'm a sucker. I'll watch them all and, and frequently do, but for the most part, Voyager's my, my least favorite of the series. Yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, I think, I think um, for the modern series, uh, the modern Star Trek series, I think my favorite's uh, Deep Space Nine. What, I'm with you, Ben. But only kind of marginally, you know, because if it wasn't for TNG, you wouldn't have the Space Nine. It wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. And if it wasn't for the films, you wouldn't have gotten TNG. And if it wasn't for the originals, you wouldn't have gotten the films. <laughs> so it all goes back to the original. Mm-hmm. But I'm with you. I, I think Deep Space Nine was the most consistently well written and well acted of the series. Um, despite, uh, you know, there, there was some there was some weak acting in the first season before they all got their footing. Avery Brooks became amazing. I thought he was a little stilted in the beginning, but became great as it went on. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I just so consistently well written that show was. I, I really loved it. And I, I love the idea too that. 
it was ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and let's face it, Next Generation, I, I'm a major fan of Next Generation, but being completely honest, that first season is really hard to get through. And, and, and a lot of the second season, too. It, it, they're, they're really clunky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's all like, uh, Deep Space Nine kind of improved when, um, you know, as soon as uh, Avery Brooks shaved his head, you know, his acting muscles kicked in. You know, everyone says that, and I'm, I'm totally there. I totally agree. <laughs> um, He'd be badass all of a sudden, and he allowed himself to stop enunciating everything like this. It, 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 you know, he suddenly learned how to, it seemed like he was more, maybe it's because he was more comfortable with the line. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, with the character, I mean, rather. Yeah, and, and one one of the best episodes for me is where, where Cisco actually uh, goes to Garrick in order to sort of like, uh, help turn the tide of the war by sort of like, uh, setting up the Romulans for a fall. So they side with the Federation. The truth is, you really can't go wrong with Garrick. Mm-hmm. I, I think there should be a TV show called Star Trek Garrick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he he actually he actually did a fantastic novel called A Stitch in Time. I remember reading that uh, on the flight home from the states once. He, he's just a, he's a good writer and he's a he's a very good very good actor. Mm-hmm. But while we're on while we're on the subject of Star Trek, a project that you're currently involved with um, is you're, you're trying to put together, you're trying to get get fan support to um, get IDW to uh, republish a lot of the uh, British uh, Star Trek strips. Um, how, how did you how did you come about? You know, how did that come about? Well, I. Uh... This goes back to the 90s when I, I'm, I am first and foremost, uh, in terms of collecting, a Star Trek comic collector. I, um, I'm very happy to say that I have every single issue, um, 1967 to present. And at one point, a friend of mine picked up something for me that completely proved that statement wrong, which was, um, well, basically, he had, he had gone to a convention and came home with an issue uh, of Valiant, um, and it, which is a, a British, as you know, it, a British comic book. And for the American readers may not be familiar with it. And and I looked at it and said, what the hell is this? Because it was the early 90s and it, there, pre-internet, a lot of Americans really weren't all that familiar with the comics over there. It's not like they were easy to come by here. And most of us just simply didn't even realize that there had been a British comic strip uh, based on Star Trek. And here I was always saying I had I had every issue. And I'm looking at one I clearly don't have, which was amazing but also horrifying because, good God, how many of these are there? It's only two pages, so it's serialized, which means there are probably a lot of them. It took a lot of research, um, especially given that it's not like I could just go into Google since Google didn't exist yet. Um, but I managed to um, determine that there were 257 issues and six hardcover books that had additional strips. And through a site that used to exist, but sadly I don't think it does anymore, called uh, 26pigs.com. <laughs> yeah, a crazy name, but 26pigs.com was a site that put me in touch with a lot of British comic book collectors and um, a lot of time and. Uh, horrifying amount of money. I managed to track them all down. And then I read them. And then I thought, why did I track these down? They're pretty awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, But they're in the pages of Joe 90 Top Secret, and then TV 21 and Joe 90, which TV 21 merged with Joe 90. Then, uh, and then it dropped Joe 90 from the title and became TV 21. And then TV 21 merged with Valiant. And the strips just continued straight through. I um, Because I knew that my having a complete set was probably pretty unusual for Americans, 
um, I decided, you know what? If I have these, everybody should have these. And I think it's uh, it was a lot of fun reading out buying these, but uh, really, it, what's the point if there's no one I can talk about these things to? I want I want to see someone give these a pretty professional treatment. So I started approaching publishers back then in Pocket Books and Wildstorm. Both were very interested, but at the time, both um, ran into some legal troubles in, in securing the ability to uh, to reprint these. Unfortunately, um, despite the best efforts of both John Ordover and, and, and Jeff Marriott, who really did try hard, the if books never came about. Mm, I also had a complete set of the U.S. strips that had run in um, uh, L.A. Times Syndicate. Uh, for, well, they were from the L.A. Times Syndicate. They had run in a bunch of different newspapers, and um, I had been trying to get them to publish those as well, but they ran into the same problem. So, flash forward about a decade, and I figured, you know, it's been a long time since I've tried to get these published. Well, see, maybe IDW will try will want to do it, and so I contacted Chris Rial at, uh, at IDW, and to my surprise, he responded the same day saying something I thought was pretty amazing, which was. I was actually looking to reprint these myself, but I don't have them. So your timing is pretty amazing. And I said, oh, I, I, that's pretty bizarre, but that's great. And the result was um, he put me in, well, he put me in touch with their imprint, Library of American Comics. And the result were, um, was the publication of two hardcover books. I believe it was 2012 and 2013 that reprinted the entire set of the LA Times strips. And they really, I don't know if you saw the books, but they did such a beautiful job with it. Their hardcover and the, the, the paper stock and the the coloring is, is, is it's, it's great quality. There's a lot of nice extras in there. And I was very, very privileged and humbled to be asked to write the intro, to an introduction to one of the books, and um, uh, a, a lexicon, an encyclopedia to all the per- people, places, and things from the LA Times strips for the second book. It was a lot of fun. And uh, so the, the plan at the time was to potentially do the same for the British strips, but unfortunately it never came to pass. I don't exactly know why, but I, from what the impression that I got was that um, IDW may not have thought that there was a market for them. But I know that people on a regular basis ask me if if those if, if IDW is ever coming out with a volume three and four for the British strips. Uh, I often tell them um, I, I don't know, but the fact is that the fact that people are asking me means it's definitely an audience. Plus, I these were these two strips are a lot harder for Americans to find than the LA Times strip. So. If the LA Times strip sold, I have to believe that they too would sell, probably even better. So I thought, you know, what the heck? Let's um, see if we can get a, a grassroots campaign going. And it's very low key. It's not like I'm actively running around and you know yelling at people and do this. But the idea is uh, for people to let I, uh, IDW and Library of American, Com- American Comics know we'd like to see these re- reprinted. Um, we don't have them. We have no access to them, and we would definitely be interested in buying the books if you came out with them. And my hope was that if, if enough people did this, that, that maybe IDW would um, would say, yeah, you know, maybe maybe it's time to reprint these. While the because the thing is, it came out in 2012 and 2013. Um, I'd like to, I, I you know, I hate to see a, a, a number of years pass and then you know that the the spotlight goes away on them. You know, I'd ra- I'd rather strike while the iron's hot. Mm-hmm. And uh, plus, the, the the one the one thing I want to make clear is that although it seems like a conflict of interest since I'm involved in the project, that's really not my motivation. I mean, it goes back to why I wanted these things done in the first place, which is um, I'm first and foremost a fan. I want to, I want that book on my shelf. It's not just because I, I'm involved with the project. I, um, I'm disappointed because I want the book on my shelf, and 
it, it, it was very cool to be involved with knowing that to be partly responsible for fans having the LA Times strip. So um, I want to be able to do the same with the, with the British British strips, and that's the core of it. Yeah, and I, I, I'd like to, I'd like to see them as well. You know, to be honest, I mean, I've, I've seen a, I've seen a few of them um, because I've got I've, I've actually got an old TV Twenty One annual from nineteen seventy one. Right, that's one of those six hardcover books I mentioned. Yep, which, which has a has has a few of them in, and 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 I think TV Twenty One. I think it kind of ended early seventies. I think it probably stopped around about what seventy four. Yeah, it, it ran um uh, sixty nine to is it seventy three or seventy four? Oh my goodness, seventy four. Yeah, I think because, yes, seventy four. Mm-hmm. Because what what happened after that is I you know I, I only vaguely remember it you know a couple of years old because I, I was about I would have been only been about four in seventy four, um, but I remember in seventy six um and and a new magazine came out which was pretty much the same. It's sort of like it, it dealt with pop culture back in the day and it was referred to as Junior TV Times and it was called Looking. And yes. that had all, all manner of strips. It had comic strips from Logan's Run, Six Million Dollar Man, uh, Battlestar Galactica, Bangatka Beauty. I have, I have a complete run of those too. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I have um, I have two of the books that are published, but I'd, I'd absolutely love to see all the comic strips published. Yeah, in, absolutely. In one volume for, for those. But um, well, as I, I've, I've had this conversation with John Freeman in the past, and he says that it's probably to do with the rights issues, you know, with Universal and Six Million Dollar Man and all, all these different things. Oh, I'm sure. And, the problem know. with these, the fact that these magazines had franchise strips means they didn't own them. You know, anything that was original, so for example, any strips that were created original to TV21, which would basically be, you know, anything Jerry Anderson related, they that estate could publish them. But, you know, you, anything Star Trek, uh, Land of the Giants, any, any other franchise stuff, you're dealing with other people owning, owning the rights to it. And it, it gets tricky. Mm. It, it's a shame. It's a shame because I'd love to see those strips, you know, you know, sort of like uh, remastered and and republished because you know some some of them were really good. The thing about the the British Star Trek strips is, from a visual standpoint, some of them were were quite well drawn actually. Um, but. <laughs> It's very clear the writers hadn't seen the show in the beginning, actually probably throughout. But the, most of these strips are really um, off the mark writing-wise, but they're no less fun to read. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they're written from the viewpoint often of the – you get the feeling that the Enterprise is a military vessel. and that, um, Well, I, there's a book that just came out from Sequart, um, uh, Exploring Strange New Worlds. It's a, uh, by, edited by Joseph Baranato. It's an essay book that just came out about a month ago. Um, taking a look back at the entire history of Star Trek comics. And in it, Alan Porter does a very good job of dissecting those British strips, discussing what's good about them, what's bad about them, and and all of the hilarious idiosyncrasies along the way. Um, and it's funny because he points out a lot of the things that I always find humorous. There's one, ep- one, one serial where one of the plot points is Kirk teaching alien gorillas how to play uh, football, which <laughs> I think is, it's absurd. It, the very notion is, is absurd, but it's fun. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things I remember reading about TV21 and, and the Star Trek strips in, in that, and, and, and read this in an, in an article that was in Star Trek magazine a number of years back, 
Um, don't know who, can't remember who it was written by, but it was a fantastic <laughs> a- article. It covered all the gold key uh, comics mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and and the Star Trek stories that were published in uh, TV. Yeah, that I didn't write. I, I, when you said an article, I thought you were talking about the British strips, because I actually did write an article for a Star Trek magazine about the British strips. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I don't know who wrote the gold key one. Sorry. <laughs> well, you, you know, the, 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 the one thing that, that, that struck out, it might have been your article, actually. I might just be confusing the gold key strips. With, with the British strips, but you know, one of the things that he, you know, that they stated in the article, which which sort of like uh, really stuck out, was the fact that the um, the British strips earlier on, early on, were very very much out of continuity with, um, with with Star Trek at the time because it hadn't even been on British television at the time in sixty seven. Yep, I think you're talking about my article then because that's exactly true. That, that it hadn't even aired, so the writers who were putting these early strips together had not seen the show, and the materials that they were provided were very clearly skimpy uh, because the Enterprise really didn't look like the Enterprise, and half the time the crew was all wearing green shirts, and when they did wear red shirts, it, that included Kirk. Uh, it, it, it was all over the place. Um, sometimes the bridge looked like it could house five people. Sometimes it looked like it could house 25 people. And Kirk, uh, Kirk, Kirk and Spock and whoever else needed to be at saying it at the time would say things like, Great suffering galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! It sounds, sounds like. Uh... See, that's what's fun about this. It's hilarious. It, it's truly hilarious to read these things. When, when you have um, when you have Spock yelling, "Great shades of Pluto, Captain." No, that's not true. Because he, never, <laughs> because he didn't even say Captain. He said Skipper. So, great shades of Pluto, Skipper. I mean, it, it's it's wonderful. It's so off key, um, but it's hilarious, and and it's it's worth it just for the Mystery Science Theater three thousand value of reading these. Things. They got better as they went along. None of them ever became, you know, DC Comics Star Trek. I mean, none of them are on that level. But but they got a little better. And um, the only thing I can say that accounts for how bizarre they are is that it, it really seems like nobody involved in it had ever seen the show, both either the writers or the artists. I get the feeling that the artists were working off photo stills because there are times when the likenesses were really, really good. But anytime they were trying to draw something that was not from a still, so if it wasn't an established character, then it looked that whatever they were drawing didn't match at all. Robots, um, as Alan Porter points out in his essay, all the robots kind of look like um, they would belong in a 50s pulp movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not how Star Trek was, was, was written at all and uh, or, 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 or presented. So I get the feeling that nobody involved had ever, se- had ever seen it, and therefore they were flying by the seat of their, of their space pants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, no, the ones that I read in the uh, TV21 uh, annual that I had in, you know, that I got a couple of years back from, um, you know, from a comics convention, I think it was, um, you know, they, they, they did have, you know, that, that sort of like great suffering galaxies thing going on and stuff like that, and I thought, mm, what's going on here? Because all I'd been familiar with really up until that point was sort of like um, the stuff that Wildstorm had done, uh, right. some of the DC stuff, but the DC stuff, when it came out in the UK... Um, it was kind of hard to get hold of unless you unless you actually got them from 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 a comic store and you know comic stores because I'm kind of in the burbs. There's no no comic stores near where I am. You know the, the nearest one's Central Manchester. Although I imagine these days it's probably a lot easier with the internet. It, it is. I mean, you know, I get all my comics from uh, Traveling Man, Little Plug, uh, but I get them all from the Leeds branch because the Manchester branch doesn't do mail order, and I'm kind of like uh, on the outskirts of Manchester, and it's all like it's about, about, about an hour in. 
by by trams and and uh, buses and things, so it's easier to uh, just just get the comics sent to me. So. I live on Long Island, which is about about forty minutes outside of New York City. And um, in case you've never been down here, uh, when I first moved here in '92, it seemed like there was a comic store um, every couple of blocks. They were everywhere. There was a ton of them, and I was pretty amazed at how prevalent they were uh, because I came from an area where that wasn't the case. But here we are, twenty-something years later, and there are practically no comic stores here whatsoever. Um, and that's mostly because of the internet. I think it's it's. Um, People find it a lot easier. The, the mom and pop stores that used to be here have largely gone away. It's a shame. It, it is a shame. You know, it, it is a shame because with the uh, mom and pop stores, you got you got a personal service and you got um, you, you know, you got the benefit of their of their knowledge about what they were selling to you. You know what I find is interesting. And I've talked about this to other people. I miss the hunt. I, I love the fact that the internet makes it easy for me to um, find information about things, but I miss the hunt for them. See, it took me 10 years to complete my run of the LA time strips and the British strips. 10 years. And during those 10 years, I agonized over finding these things um, because uh, you're talking four years worth of daily American strips and five years worth of weekly British strips. It's a lot of material. Mm -hmm. And uh, But when I finally found it all, I, I couldn't believe my good fortune. I couldn't believe I'd pulled it off. The problem was now that kind of hunt is not nearly as difficult because suddenly my hunting space is the entire planet, which is a good thing if you're looking for something. But I miss I miss being able to go to comic shops. My, my wife and I, when we were first married, on our anniversary, we would travel. So we would go to Toronto or we'd go to California. And when we'd get there, if I saw that there were local comic shops, I'd go in all excited because I'd scoured all the local ones already. So the ones in New York. So I, I you know, I, I now I had a whole new hunting ground and I'd come home with 20 or 30 treasures and think this is great. I, but that doesn't happen anymore because anything that I want to track down, I can go on Google right now, type it in. And chances are 10 minutes later, I can order it. And that for me has really killed my interest in collecting. Mm -hmm. Um, moving on to another subject, do you think you know? Do you think there could be a case made to uh, do do a reprint run on all of the Marvel Planet of the Apes comics that came out in the seventies? Oh, absolutely! I'm amazed no one's done it before. Yeah, so, so am I, especially given <laughs> that the uh, that the new films are, are, have come out. I mean, I've you know I've I've got a couple of those, and I've got um, I've actually got the Marvel uh, the original Marvel uh, comics. Uh, actually, ones ones I think one of them is actually a British version. Of it, but I've got the original Marvel run of um, Saga of a Star World, the uh, the Battlestar Galactica. I've, I've got the uh, I've got the entire runs for both of those for Galactica and Apes. You know, there have been two false starts in in collecting the Marvel Ape stuff. Um, back when Malibu Graphics had the the license in the nineties, they were going to reprint Marvel's entire um, Terror on the Planet of the Apes storyline, but they only got four issues done, and then it, 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 it didn't go any further. Boom Studios, who has the license now, had actually a couple years ago, I think it, I think it was 2011, but I'm not sure. Had um, had ad, had advertised that they were going to reprint the entire run of Terror on the Planet of the Apes, and so they went so far as to actually um, produce the covers that were going to be on those issues. And as far as I know, no one's ever mentioned it again. <laughs> I, I remember that because um, at that time, um, you know, there, there was a there was two Planet of the Apes uh, wrecking a monthly storylines going on. Exactly. I've got the complete. I've got I've got the complete set of both. 
Um, cracking storylines as well, re- really, really good work. I, I absolutely love what Boom has been doing. Okay. I, I've, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who can make excuses for bad ape stories because I'd rather have ape stories than than none. But I don't have to make excuses with Boom because they've just done such great work. Um, the 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 first main story by Daryl Gregory and, and Carlos Magno was great. It's fantastic. Uh, I just was pulled in by that storyline. I, 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 um, I've reread it several times and I'm, I'm really really just so enthralled with it and then there were a series of connected miniseries by Corinna Bechko and Gabriel Hardman that I also thought were great and and um, I was very bummed out when I found out that both of those storylines were going away yep. I'm glad to be getting new stuff based on Rise and Dawn but I, I do miss those storylines mm-hmm. yeah I, I agree with you I mean I, I think uh, you know I, I actually uh, interviewed Corinna Bechko and, uh, and, and Gabriel Hardman several times about it and I remember you know, a while back, uh, we actually did a, a Planet of the Apes special where we talked about the movies, um, and uh, Karina and uh, Gabriel and, and Daryl Gregory were on that with me as well. You know, they're all great people, and, yeah. You know, that and, and the great thing is, is they're fans of it as well, so it's just a well, uh, it's just great to speak to other fans, you know, that know, know perhaps more, more, more about it than, that, than I do. Karina and Gabriel are actually writing a foreword to a book that I'm editing about Planet of the Apes comics. Um, it'll be out in 2015, and, and they really are avid fans. And I, I, it's, it's amazing. I just really, <laughs> I, I, I'm just really excited to have them aboard um, involved with the book. It, it's for Sequart. It's, uh, it's, it's a very similar book to what I just described with the Star Trek strip. Sequart is um, doing a second book, this time about Planet of the Apes, and Joe Baronado and I are co-editing it. And um, uh, we've got a number of people involved um, who, who been involved with uh, Planet of the Apes, with Karina and Gabriel doing the forward. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm, I'm hope, hopefully I can like uh, get hold of a few of these at some point once uh, once the money tree actually grows out of my, out of my backyard. You know, <laughs> that, that, that'd well, be you, great. Need to, you need to get the Back to the Future cartoon because uh, one of the episodes is about a money tree. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear me! Um, anyway, Rich, it's been great having you on the show. Absolutely, this was yeah. fun. So, uh, if you mind, there is one thing I would like to say since uh, about the um, about the grassroots effort, which is where they can, if people want to learn more about this, they can go to um, hashlinebooks.com and click on blog. Uh, there's a couple of blog entries on there that discuss this project to get the um, British Star Trek strips reprinted. So, if they want to learn more about it, that would be a good place to go. Cool. Well, well, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show. It's been been great having you. Sounds great. Good talking to you. Next time on the new audio adventures of Star Trek, the continuing mission. I know who you are. You're Captain Paul Edwards. Why am I sitting here with you? You have something better to do tonight? I don't know what you hope to accomplish by following the Doctor around Managua all night. Don't you think sneaking around like that is a little undignified? You know this stuff isn't half bad once you get used to it. A little plain, isn't it? Plain? That's my mother's own recipe. That building is a brothel. I think we both know what he's doing in there. Why don't you just stay here tonight? And if you want to, you can take one of these old birds up in the air in the morning. I didn't know you two were fond of Nicaragua. Oh, yes. Fond. Very fond. I can't feel my head. I would say your Bushmills does an adequate job. Aye, that it does, Miss Mitrokov. <laughs> Nothing like a night in Managua. 
I don't know why I let you talk me into this. Don't bruise the cheese ball. Right, 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 right. Only on the new audio adventures of Star Trek. The Continuing Mission at continuingmission.com. 30 seconds forward. Okay, engine stop. We copy it down. Remember when science fiction drama envisioned stories that were happening where no one had gone before? Discovering and exploring other worlds far, far away. While many of these series and films became cult classics, somewhere along the way, this genre got lost. Imagine if there was a place where you could go watch exciting new space opera series made specifically for the niche audience that you are. Imagine if this place was conducted by a team as passionate as you about science fiction and who would use all their background experience to make sure you get the best entertainment possible. SOS is a not-for-profit independent production facility that brings together writers, special effects wizards, and other creative talent from around the world who've worked on some of the most recognizable and respected science fiction franchises. So throw away your remote control and get real control by joining the Space Opera Society right now. With as little as one dollar, you can change the future of entertainment today. For more information, please visit our website. Which is, of course, spaceoperasociety.com. Where all your questions will be answered in our frequently asked questions page. And don't miss our short video presentation from some of our space opera series in development. And I'll step off the That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This is Mark Wade. Hi, this is Amanda Tapping. Hello, I'm Steve Pugh. And you can catch them all right here on SFP Now. And that's about all we have time for this week, folks. Thanks for listening and uh, hope you listen again next week. Bye for now.